Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MyFit Podcast, hosted by fitness coach, business owner, and CrossFit Games athlete, DJ Hillier. Physical fitness and podcasting are two of his life passions, and his goal is to train, educate, and inspire those who want to improve their general health. These podcasts are designed to help everyone, from the occasional gym member trying to improve their overall wellness, to the fitness enthusiast. The episodes capture a wide spectrum of topics, including training, coaching, nutrition, entrepreneurship, relationships, and mindset. Follow the show on Instagram at the MyFit Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at djhillier.com. So let's get to it. Hey everybody, welcome back. This is DJ Hillier and you are listening to another edition of the My Fit Podcast. This week on the show, I chat with NBA performance coach, Mike G, AKA Mr. Do It Moving. Mike is one of the most sought after coaches in the industry and has worked with guys like Drew Holiday, Anthony Davis, Dwight Howard, and several more top NBA players. Mike is a very passionate individual who loves what he does and takes an athlete-centric approach and really values quality over quantity when it comes to his training methodologies. If you guys are a coach, trainer, or just a fan of strength and conditioning, this episode is surely going to be a great one for you. Some of the topics we got into today were first unilateral training versus bilateral training versus barefoot training. When are they appropriate? When is it not appropriate? And also, how do we progress it when it comes to training basketball players? We then talked about mobility for athletes, what it should look like and why it should be more of a workout than something just passive and something like a sit and reach uh, while texting. After that, we talked about what does it mean to be basketball strong? This is something that's been on my mind probably since I was playing basketball in high school. Just the idea that uh, hoopers don't have to have the same body type, the same weight room numbers as, say, a football player. And somehow, and because of that, the training should also look very different as well. So I really wanted Mike to break down what does it mean to be basketball strong? After that, we talked about something that's been a really uh, continuing theme in my podcast. It's how to create an environment for success. And Mike took it uh, a little bit of a different route. When he talked about creating an environment for success, he talked about you know a lot of the people that he's bringing in, they're six foot eight or taller. And how can we make it a more comfortable environment? How can we set up the environment for them to win in and not something that they're continually not to like? I think it's a really good takeaway for coaches and trainers out there, depending on who you're working with. It could be an NBA player, or it could be a mom of four kids. How can you set up the room? How can you set up the workout to be more successful for them? And we talked about Mike's ramp up warm up protocol and what that looks like day to day. And then we closed down by talking about any advice that he has for young coaches and young athletes who are aspiring to get to the top of the game. If you guys enjoyed the show and you want to hear more from Mike, make sure to follow his Instagram. He posts uh, frequently. He has a lot of great videos and things that you guys can take into your own training. That's at Mr. Do It Moving on Instagram. And as always, if you enjoyed the show, be sure to leave a rating review and refer to a friend. All that stuff helps the show grow tremendously and it makes my day. I thank you guys all for the continued support. It's been great to get back into the booth, back on the mic and get back into giving you guys great content. So without further delay, let's get to this episode with Mr. Coach Mike G. Let's go. Mike G, Mr. Do It Moving. Welcome to the MyFit Podcast, man. It's been a long time coming. I'm glad that we could set some time aside today to chat. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much. Um, let's get this thing rolling. 
Let's get to it. So you are an MBA performance coach and you grew up as a football player. So how did you transition from football to basketball? And then probably the most common question you get is, how did you get a chance to work with some of the best NBA players in the world? Yeah, so grew up playing football, played football in college. Um, but as most coaches know, movement in sport is movement. It's human movement. That's how we look at it, dissect it, analyze it and approach our training model and systems based off of movement. So, you know, it, you know, I worked with high level tennis. I worked with high level football and transitioned into the basketball world, just essentially being in LA. I think a lot of it has to do with the relationships that you create and the people that you come across and cross paths with. And I was working with a facility that worked with all pro sports, MLB, NBA, NFL. And, you know, as, as, a, as a Swiss Army knife, just hungry to, to get my hands on athletes, not just pro athletes, but all athletes of all levels. I was naturally put around people like Drew Holiday as a young coach, as a young, uh, essentially weight picker-upper and putter-upper. And uh, that naturally transitioned into working with um, NBA teams and then and then the likes of NBA individuals. So it's been quite a ride. And just, you know, being being around, letting your light shine. That's pretty much what it has to do with just just going out there and being a go getter. Right. I would imagine, too, Mike, there are probably some days where you were more of an intern or you're more doing things that were, you know, I'm just working for experience. I'm, I'm trying to think about the coaches out there listening that, you know, they want to be you someday. What advice would you give to somebody who's maybe young in their career and they have aspirations of, man, I'd love to train a guy like Drew Holiday. Number one, reduce your expectations to the process of really maximizing every single day and approaching it as a day that you need to get better. And whether that's books, podcasts, such as the MyFit podcast, <laughs> um, conferences, seminars, webinars now, obviously, with, with COVID being kind of a, a, a tool in everybody's toolbox because of the lack of ability to travel, just figuring out ways to get better, latching on to individuals like yourself and being a sponge. I think that's number one. And then number two, trying to be as patient as possible because it doesn't happen in one year, two years, three years. It, it takes steady and solid patience to just continue to grind day by day, 12 hour days. And sometimes you may not get paid and that's okay because the, the, the actual payment comes through knowledge and experience. Mm -hmm. And that actually turns into monetary gain, hopefully, so that you can support yourself. But yeah, I think, I think the main idea that I'm trying to paint here is just reducing the high expectation of like my first year, I want to get in and train NBA athletes or pro athletes and make a lot of money doing it. It doesn't work that way. As we all know, it's, it's a, it's an industry that is built on sweat equity. And then people recognize that and then they invest in you. And then once they invest in you, good things start to happen. So I hope that helps for all the, the young listeners. Absolutely. Mike, what would you say is one thing that, you know, most of the population, the trainer population, they don't get a chance to work with NBA players. What's something that most people don't know about training NBA players? Maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it's a bad thing, but what's something that most people really don't understand? 
Uh, number one, I'll give you a bad thing. They don't necessarily uh, are drawn infinity, drawn, drawn affinity to the weight room. They don't necessarily draw an affinity to, to they don't share the passion of training. They share the passion of playing and they want to go out there and be on the court and do all the, the, the skill work and whatnot. But as far as what we do, it's it's a it's a conversation that takes a little bit of human psychology <laughs> and, and, and persuasion. And you have to figure out creative ways. First of all, communication is number one, I feel like, in our industry, period. Um, athletes, what do they say? Athletes don't care what you know until they know that they, that you care. Mm -hmm. So you have to exemplify true and pure passion for them as humans, right? I think that's very important. And then number two, figuring out co uh, creative ways to give them reasons of why this is important. You know, lifting is important. Training is, is important. Doing all the warm up and activation stuff is important. And, and it doesn't, you can't come to a 22 year old, you know, rookie or 21 and give them throw, throw up on them with all this scientific jargon. You have to meet them where they're at communication wise so that they understand and can consume the information that you're trying to feed them. So that's number one. It's, it's going to take um, an understanding that this is potentially a situation that is an uphill battle. Mm -hmm. Which is okay. I mean, uh, we're up for the challenge, and 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 it's not just about barbells and dumbbells and sets and reps. It's also the the human psychology, social aspect of it that really makes the art of coaching the art as what it is. Mm -hmm. um, number two, I think um, a lot of people are starting to talk about this more and more. Is is the the crazy and odd lever lengths. So when when we look at training. And we look at textbooks that are credible and we study them to pass exams and, and become certified. They're not considering long femurs, long legs, short torsos, uh, stiff ankles and stiff big toes. They're considering average human beings. So going really deep into the toolbox and figuring out how to load long levered athletes safely and effectively is something that's also a challenge, but a fun challenge to figure out. And then also being creative on how to, you know, apply some type of specific environment in the weight room, which makes sense to the demands of the sport that they're playing in. So, you know, basketball is very start, stop, intermittent, D cell, A cell, D cell, A cell on single legs, mainly. How do we create similar uh, movement demands and force demands to emulate those types of ideas and concepts so that it makes sense and it transfers? Now you have a platform of communication to discuss with a 21-year-old rookie. Look, this is why this exercise makes sense because that Euro step that you just did, there's a lot of forces that you got to be able to accept. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. And I think that that's a that's – a, a big component of coaching that we all must really try to focus on. Mm -hmm. In my experience, just being around hoopers and, and training guys. And so my best friends played in college, college hoops. Uh, there's kind of two things that 
made them not want to get in the weight room. And I think the first one was that they didn't want to throw off their shot. I think it's like this old school mentality of, well, if I lift at my upper body, then my, my shot's going to get stiff. I'm going to get tight. So I definitely don't want to do upper body. And then the other part was, you know, I just feel uncomfortable, right? My body, I'm six, eight. I'm not really meant to do these full depth squats. The bench press seems like I got these long arms, right? So you talk about these levers and things like that. I think, you know, let's maybe attack one, then the other. So people talk about, man, it's going to throw off my shot. Tell me about how do you debunk that myth if a, if a, if a, a player says that to you? Yeah, I think that it's no different. <laughs> you can go about it two, two ways. You can say, well, you know, drinking alcohol <laughs> will throw off your shot too. I'm not saying that you should or shouldn't, but I'm just saying. So you can kind of meet them like in their world, you know, not saying that everyone drinks alcohol, but, you know, it's it's a lifestyle thing. And when you're going from NBA City to NBA City, that that is something that's around, right? Um, or you could go into the scientific realm of like motor control and motor learning and always revert back to like, if you, there is some validity to, 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 all right, if I bench press and my chest is sore, I physically have some sort of pain response or stress response that makes me more tight or makes me um, a little less apprehensive, a little more apprehensive to maybe get full extension or whatever it is that is kind of lacking when they shoot the ball. And then a lot of shooting is psychological, right? So like, as soon as I have a bad day, I'm trying to find the reason why. Oh, I, I did upper body yesterday. Boom. It's because, Mike, I can't, I, I can't do upper body anymore. Look at my shooting. It's terrible. But then, you know, you could, there, there's so many layers of that onion to, to, to unpeel. Is like, there's so many factors to why people have bad shooting nights, right? So is it the lifting? Is it the diet? Is it the lack of sleep that you had? Is it, you know, is it just a bad night? Like everybody has um bad nights but you know one of the things that i always talk about with the athletes is every day that you wake up you are a different human being mm -hmm. biologically psychologically emotionally spiritually and all this plays into your ability to maximize performance and what determines that upmake is your nutrition your sleep um, the type of stress that you're taking on social, physical, whatever it is, that's going to create who you are each day that you wake up. So I think, I think beyond going down the rabbit hole, it's really hard. I guess what I'm trying to say, it's really hard to pinpoint one specific factor of why somebody's jump shot is, is suffering or shot is suffering. And again, you meet people where they're at. If that is a statement, there's validity to them in their mind. So you have to find a way to traverse that conversation and say, okay, okay, bench press, we'll cut it out. You didn't like the way you felt, but what about maybe some shoulder pressing or what, how can I load the upper body in a way that still continues to induce the stress responses that we're looking for, but still make him feel like, or her feel like, yeah, nah, I'm not doing bench press no more. That messed my shot up. You see what I'm saying? So totally. there's, there is a, there's a, there's a, not a manipulation as a terrible word to say, but you got to kind of walk that path with them and, and figure out ways to troubleshoot it so that it still makes sense to both parties. Right. And I think that anytime an athlete tells you that something ain't working well for them, you have to listen to them. It's a great answer, man. The second part was just being uncomfortable. So we talk about like, you know, we have a guy at our gym who's 6'11 and just watching him do back squats is just, 
it's a lot different than my 510 self doing back squats. It's just a different range. They're working a lot harder. You can tell they're uncomfortable. So Mike is something is something that you do something, something that I do is I'll just shorten the range of motion on things. So instead of deadlifting from the floor, we'll put some plates underneath them and we'll kind of cut things down a little bit. Talk to me about your process when you have an, I mean, all NBA players are tall, but let's say an abnormally tall NBA player, and you still want to try to hit some of these classic lifts, if you will, is shortening the range of motion, something you like to do? How can you get them to feel more comfortable? It's a great, uh, you, you basically, you know, spoke for what I'm about to say is, is you, you manipulate the environment, right? So you make the environment around them fit their movement capabilities and what they physically possess. And, uh, you know, one size does not fit all as, as we know, you know, we can evolve our mindset and not be stuck into what it should be, you know, ass to grass, back squat or what have you front squat and, and create an environment that gives the athlete success. I think one of the main things that I, I feel strongly about that you touched on was NBA or basketball players don't enjoy lifting because it feels very difficult and uncomfortable. And there, and that's so true because everything is way more effortful or has way more effort than us. I'm five, eight, like it's easy to back squat. It's easy to front squat. Right. But now these guys, a are abnormally long and have different size levers that anyone does. The world is not built for them, right? Cars, chairs, everything. It's not built for them. So they're consistently having to manipulate and maneuver themselves to make themselves fit small world and in the weight room is no different so how do we be smart and creative to make the weight room fit them mm -hmm. uh, boxes on underneath plates um shortening the range of motion uh maybe maybe if you're looking for like end range depth strength uh you you go unilateral and you split the squat or split the stance and you just load one side at a time but there are different ways to create an environment for success that a gets the goal done in terms of what we want, you know, stress response, tissue, 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 and B, still train them hard and, 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 and have them feel like they're training hard, but it doesn't feel uncomfortable, mm -hmm. right? Make that environment fit them so that it feels good, but feels like they're still training hard. And uh, I think that's the difference. We have to bring our egos down, not train everyone the same, assess the person in front of uh, in front of you or the people in front of you and make the environment fit them versus trying to make them fit your mindset. Cool. Something that I really want to get into with you, Mike, is talking about the idea of basketball strong versus weight room strong. And this is something that you and Paul <clears throat> talked about a lot. And it's this idea of, you know, you look at a basket, uh, the, the NBA players nowadays, they're not super big and bulky they're but they're strong, right? They're very lean, but they're strong in a basketball sense. So if you could like break that down a little bit, what to you, what does it mean to be basketball on the floor strong versus weight room strong? How's that different from perhaps other sports? Yeah. And, and why is it so um, important for basketball players to be basketball strong? What does all that look like? Let's just try to unpeel a little bit and maybe we'll go down some rabbit holes. Okay. So I think that, you know, when we, when we, really dissect the weight room. Hopefully we're transitioning and evolving more into three-dimensional loading, shifting weight through gravity, um, three planes of motion, different depths, different stances, different directions. Okay. Because that's life. 
right? We want to be able to accept load and absorb and apply load in different directions, angles, depths, what have you. But if you look at a the weight room in a traditional sense, if we're mostly linear and up and down, you know, you can, it, it, it definitely has its place. You, at the end of the day, you need to load tissue for it to have a response. And I'm really, really big on tissue tolerance in the Achilles, in the quadriceps, uh, mainly to pre prevent that tendinosis pathology. So we'll load the hell out of, you know, a single leg split squat and try to hold that thing for 25 seconds with 300 pounds on your back. You know, that's now no question. We are we are putting big loads on our bodies and our systems. However, when you talk about basketball strength. I think a lot of it has to do with the ability to be strong in locomotion. So, for instance. If I'm playing defense and athletes or a ball handler is trying to go by me, you know, go to the basket and dunk. If I have the ability to a read and perceive movement, operate the right strategy, the movement strategy and cut off said ball handler, I need to be able to possess a certain amount of basketball strength to absorb force, hold my ground and still be able to create the next movement, which is a contestant contesting a jump shot or another cut or whatever it is. So do, is that type of strength truly developed in a linear heavy back squat, um, in a linear bench press or shoulder press, in a linear RDO? You know, all these really necessary movements for training, period. But that type of strength, I don't believe, in my opinion, is going to be um, developed doing those movements. So um, we're really, I'm really big on shifting weight and stepping in lateral planes of motion. So for instance, I'll have a plate or a med ball or a rubber tube called a Viper and we'll step and reach so that when we're shifting that weight through the field of gravity, all the tissue that's responsible for, for you know, creating that movement is getting strong in a sense also with locomotion. So I think that that's how you develop that movement basketball strength that's really going to translate to absorbing force during locomotion. In the same token, um, basketball, uh, excuse me, football players, rugby, and any other sport that, where you have to impose your physical will on another human being, literally like trying to move them or tackle them or whatever, um, that has a lot more application as it relates to linear lifting, because it's more in this plane of motion. So when you think about basketball, I'm not too sure if that happens as much in terms of trying to impose your physical will on another human being, but it does have its place. For instance, guarding the post, you got to be mm -hmm. able to ward off defenders mm -hmm. or award off defenders and or ward off the, the man posting. Um, and I think that that also has its place in, in from the from the standpoint of that linear lifting idea, but creating use, utilizing tools like shifting weight or cable systems, um, elastic bands, even other athletes to load untraditionally in different depths, different directions, you know, like paloff press type stuff, but like with 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 high amounts of force. I think is 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 a is an idea that's expanding 
um, people are definitely understanding that that does have its place in training. Um, I think that a lot of times people are fighting time. So if you only have a certain amount of time, you know that you need to objectify improvement. You can't objectify basketball strength, right. but you can objectify your squat, your bent, your, your vertical jump and stuff like that. So I get it. There, there's a, there's a gift, and, you know, a gift and a curse with both. But um, if you have the ability to just train people and, 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 and do what you feel is best, definitely involve the three dimensional loading stuff, because that definitely has its application in, in all the sport. Mm -hmm. That's really good stuff, man. I think another to add to it, another piece, and it kind of, it may coincide with some of the things you're talking about is just overall body awareness and body control. Think about like going up for a layup and, and embracing somebody that's about to come into you or trying to fight off a pick. There's just a lot of isometric stability, body awareness, body control. How do you replicate maybe some of the stuff you already said, but how do you replicate some of that movement when it comes to training? Yeah, you're, you know, we, we were one of the same mind being able it's called positional awareness in my opinion and then uh people like alex natera people like joel smith introduce ideas to me that event essentially take um sport specific positions yeah. and 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 load them via isometric whatever maybe it's a pull maybe it's a push maybe it's an overcoming iso what have you um maybe it's a yielding ISO doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be high amounts of force, but like you said, creating the cognitive awareness of being present in that moment says something to a, the athlete, I'm confident, I'm strong in this position. And then B the brain recognizes mm -hmm. those positions so that when they're put into that, into that position in the game with load, with velocity, the brain can handle it. It self-organizes boom we're off and running wherever we're going, wherever we need to do. Whereas if you don't train the, the positions that you're put in all the time, except for on the court, maybe your tissues don't, can't really handle that. And, and that's, that's, that's how these injuries can occur. We can't de definitively define that or definitively uh, assess that, but it, it makes sense to me. If you're never, if you're seven foot, but you never train low end range positions, does it make sense that, you got hurt when you went to go scoop a ball up. I, to me, it does. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. um, I, 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 def I definitely think the confidence standpoint for the players, mm -hmm. like, yeah, I'm strong in these depths. And then also the, the motor control and learning standpoint is like the brain actually adapts and can really recognize those positions once they're placed in, in, totally. in sport. Yeah. So as a coach, Mike, when you're watching a basketball game, I'm sure you see it very differently than the average yeah. fan who's sitting there. Are you, are you, as you're sitting there on court side, I'm imagining, are you watching, are you watching angles more than anything else? Are you watching oh where, God. you know, the different angles players are in the different end ranges? How do you see a basketball game? Yeah, no, absolutely. So no, I'm not court side. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't that big time, but um, absolutely. I, 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 you know, if, if it's a, a game, that is not as important. I can really change the goggles of my vision and, and go into coach mode. And, and I think playing the sport is the best way to, to watch the game. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, I'm a football player. So that doesn't mean I didn't play basketball growing up, but obviously with the way I see sport now and the way I look at movement, I'm more aware of how I move on the court as well. So that for me was a game changer. Once I started to actually take a serious 
approach on playing the game. I've even hired skill coaches to train me so that I can, that was literally R and D for me. It was research and development for me because I was going through what basketball players go through from the standpoint of how they train, how they're, how they move, but also high level coaching. So this is how it's supposed to be done. I'm like, okay, Mm -hmm. so these are the different types of force applications, deceleration, angles, depth. This is the way I problem solve. This is the way my mind works when I'm doing cognitive skill, whatever it is. Uh, it really helped me see the game better. And then when I watch the game now, I'm able to look at separation. I'm able to look at depths and levels. And, you know, a big one for me is like everyone runs pick and roll, but no one can guard it. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like as far as getting over screens or getting under screens or getting through screens, I think my guy, Drew, is probably the best in the world at it. And he can't even tell me how he does it. It's just in him. So like all that stuff that he does when he gets Mm -hmm. skinny and gets low, that's like, I don't, we don't work on that. Um, But figuring out ways to create a drill or an environment or an exercise to kind of get into those different positions is something that is always uh, uh, keen on my mind when I watch sport or watch games from that standpoint. Uh, but sometimes, you know, just like you, you, you probably just like to kick back and watch a game and, and enjoy the game as well. So, right, right. It's a, it's a balance, right? <laughs> um, so another thing, just watching and picking up on your Instagram a little bit is a lot of your athletes are barefoot for most of the session. I've been doing this and I'm, I'm just speaking what I see on Instagram. It might not be the case, but um, I've been doing it with my athletes as well. So my basketball players, we will warm up with some barefoot training just to try to create a little bit more of a unstable surface. Uh, and because they're just my high school kids spend pretty much their entire lives in shoes, I think it's important for them to get out of it. But can you talk a little bit about why it's important for your uh, athletes to get barefoot? And what are some of the things that you really want to check off your list during the times that they're barefoot if it's not the whole session? So first and foremost, if you're a high level basketball player, nine times out of 10, you've probably been playing since you were 10. And that would include you playing year round, which would include you playing between two to five games every week. And most of the time in those tournaments during the weekend, they don't take their shoes off. Like they'll stay in their shoes the whole time because it's such a short turnaround or whatever. So it's like, why even bother taking my shoes off? And then their feet look like this. Over the course of time, they just evolve to the really tight and narrow toe box, which means their toes crowd, which means their feet, you know, one of the most most rich proprioceptive places on the body in terms of body awareness is the feet and hands. So now you're taking the most sensory organ in the body, the foot, and decreasing it by, I don't know, 50% because it literally is stuck like this. They're like cemented like this. The fascia, the tissue is calcified. Mm -hmm. So how do we combat that? It's a slow process. It's something that you got to be super patient with, but yeah, get them out of their socks and shoes and, and have them warm up barefoot so that they can actually feel what the, what, what their feet feel like and what the floor feels like underneath their feet. You, if you ever, and I'm sure you can, you can attest to this. If you ever take an athlete that's not used to being barefoot, everything hurts the bottom of their feet. Yeah. Every little thing. Yeah. It could be, yeah. it could be turf. I know. And you're, you're like, what are you talking about? This bothers your feet. 
Right. You know what I mean? And don't walk on those stones or, you know, the rock mats that they have now to kind of open and mobilize. Like, don't do that. That's like the worst part of the workout, the, the rock walk. But that kind of speaks to what we're talking about. It's like your, your feet are so bound up and used to being protected that your brain doesn't even recognize mm-hmm. sensation. And it, there's a pain response. So um, body awareness, in my opinion, drastically uh, relies on the foot being able to sense where it's at in space. So, you know, they talk about the calcaneus, the, fir- the fifth and first med head as that triangle, that, that, mm-hmm. that tripod, mm-hmm. if you will. But if you're not ever out of your socks and shoes, how can you ever feel what that tripod is? Right. So that's like the main reason why I feel like being barefoot is such a good way to warm up and, 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 and create a different environment for the athlete. But there are a multitude of reasons. I, you know, I, I also believe that being the foot is the first interface of contact with the body and the earth. If the foot is stronger, the whole body is, is stronger. Period. Simple, plain, that simple to me. Um, also, big toe extension. And ankle dorsiflexion are 70 to 80 percent of why uh, of most basketball athletes lack. Right. So big toe extension and ankle dorsiflexion. Most basketball athletes don't have good range there. I think getting out of the socks and shoes present an environment to work on those things. You can't really work on big toe extension in shoes. So get out of your shoes for that. Really work big toe extension. Let that big toe move. Um, and then uh, I think also doing the, the, the low-level plyos, the elastic response, quick response plyos barefoot um, helps with the arch development, helps with the elasticity of the foot, helps with creating a little more resilience from the, the ankle foot complex standpoint. You know, for some reason, Achilles injuries and ruptures are, are – an epidemic right now in the basketball world. So how do we combat that? We No one really knows why this is. There's so many different ideas and, and theories, but I think getting out of the socks and shoes really help address some of those tissue tolerance qualities. Mm-hmm. I think too, the, the other big injury that people talk about, it's not, I mean, it's not as big as Achilles, but just rolling your ankle. And sometimes, you know, ankle sprains can be, uh, it can be a long time before you're back into the game. So being able to, I would imagine that having that barefoot and working on some of that stability stuff is going to help decrease the chance of an ankle sprain. At what what point, you know, I think a lot of uh, coaches out there, they may want to crank up the complexity on some of the single leg, single limb stability work. Bosu with eyes closed, glasses on, I'm throw you something. It's just, it it can get really crazy. Talk to me about uh, how do you go about single leg stability? Do you like to keep it simple? Where do you start? How do you build? Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, you have to be able to own your own space before you can do any, before you add load, before you add tools or unstable services, not even an Eric's, but like rarely will you ever see me use single leg stability Eric's pad because again, these guys or gals have a hard time doing it on a rubber floor, single right. leg, eyes open. Right. Like, can you, can you perform a single leg RDL without doing all this you know what i mean like that does not pass the test and and again motor control and motor learning like what are we doing in the weight room yes we are trying to induce some type of physical stress response so that tissue can adapt 
However, there's a big brain component to it. And would you ever accept 10 misses in a row and walk off the court? No. No. There's no <laughs> way any NBA player or basketball player would, would finish their session missing 10 shots in a row. Right. Like, all right, my workout's done. No. So it's like moving on the court is a skill. Shooting the basketball is a skill. Moving in the weight room is a skill. B, I always say this. You're an NBA basketball player, top 350 in the world, 450 in the world at this. In the world, I need you to be top 450 in the world at moving in my, wor in my world mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Please. Mm -hmm. That kind of resonates with them. Like, oh, okay. So when you perform a single leg RDO with your eyes open on a stable surface, can you coordinate that with rhythm, timing, control? Yes? No? Mm -hmm. If you can, without your knee doing this, without your foot doing this, without you hopping, if the answer is no, we're going to live there until you can. And we're not going to add an unstable surface, a load, and or glasses <laughs> until you can do so. So, again, set up the environment. How do I do that? Sometimes we start at the bottom of a hinge. I'll elevate their back, their rear foot, their swing foot on like a rear foot elevated split squat, squat, uh, split squat stand and have them just hold the bottom of the hinged position. Hold that. Feel that. Do that for 45 seconds without tipping over, hopping, and or your foot going crazy. You feel that? Oh, yeah, it's cooking, right? Okay, now go into the top of the position. Hold that. Do you need dials to balance? Can you do that? Can, you know, are you stable? Are you steady? Right. Do you feel good? And then can you actually manipulate the entire action forward and back without you know, any alteration in your balance. And if you can do that, then we'll add load. And if you can do that, then we'll add perturbation. If you can, you know what I mean? And then before we even get to an unstable surface, close your eyes. Do it on a stable surface with your eyes closed. You don't need a BOSU ball, an Eric's pad and the like to challenge the stability system, the vestibular system, what have you, you know what I mean? So, um, I, you know, keep it simple. The KISS principle, right? Keep it simple. Make them own the movements. And it's not about your ego and getting them do what you think they should do. It's about what they can do. So Perfect, man. That's great advice, especially coming from an NBA trainer. Like, you don't have to make things crazy complex for the gram. Like, just make it simple. Oh, and you can, simple. honestly, I think a lot of people could probably just stand on one foot, look to their left and right, maybe do some eyes closed. And that would be, that's it. That's, that is literally it if you want to work on some stability stuff. And you don't need to throw in anything else on top of that. Agreed. Cool, Talk to me about uh, unilateral training versus bilateral training. I, I'm, I'm really, I like geeking out on this stuff, obviously with uh, sports. I, I think personally that um, a lot of the time when I'm playing any sort of sport, I'm on one leg. I'm either lunging, I'm going side to side. So I, I like to, with my athletes, do a ton of single leg unilateral training. Tell me about how you approach it. How do you balance single limb versus uh, unilateral or unilateral versus uh, bilateral? Just let's open the conversation about how you view that. Absolutely. So working with the demographic that we work with, poor ankle dorsiflexion equates to poor bilateral lifting, unless it's a hinge. Anytime you need, if this is the foot and you need the shin to drop, if you cannot and it's limited to this angle, that means the squat, the bilateral squat is going to turn into a good morning. So that being as simple as it is, if everyone can see that in their mind, um, why would we ever want to put heavy amounts of load in that pattern if they can't squat 
with an upright trunk. Mm -hmm. So you could A, elevate the heels, take the dorsiflexion out of the picture and create that environment or B, go unilateral. And I choose to go unilateral. There are studies, I can't quote the authors and or the exact year study, but if you can bear with me, there's a study that actually tested what's better, bilateral or single uh, unilateral training in terms of just force application, like the response to get strong. And they were both even. Like the, both groups got stronger evenly. Sure. Mm-hmm. So that just tells you that you can train unilaterally and still get strong, just as strong as bilateral. However, there's, you know, there's two sides. So there is be- more work being done. So that's definitely something to consider from a fatigue standpoint. But yeah, I think that I have migrated more into the unilateral world of load because of that simple fact of what you just said. When you play the sport, rarely are you on two feet and like in this perfect right. toe straight yeah. hit with the bar position <laughs> where you, you know are trying to express a high amount of force. Now, again, why do we load the body? There's a hormone response that we're chasing. There's a tissue quality response that we're chasing. So if you can have a setup where you can be bilateral and load the system with quality, for instance, a belt squat. Throw a, a basketball athlete on a belt squat, you can bilateral the hell out of them with super high loads and get those responses that you're chasing. So if you have the means to load athletes in a, in a, in a, in a position that looks healthy and, and you're actually attacking the tissues that are targeted, do that, right? Totally for it. Um, belt squat set up as well is good for uh, strength speed training because you throw some bands on the on the the track on the carriage it takes away the inertia of it bouncing and now you can really work that 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 speed on the way up which is really cool whereas you could never do that with a barbell mm-hmm. so again if you have the means of the setup bilateral loading is it has definitely has its place again it's just about fitting the environment to the athlete and as you spoke of earlier just unilateral just makes way more sense to me Rear foot elevated split squat, split squat, single leg RDL. Again, you just have to consider once you do one side, you have to do the other. Mm-hmm. That's awesome, man. I, and that's something that, you know, that that's the drum I beat as well. Is, and I think also it gets people to, you know, with lack of a better term, just engage their core more. There's just a little bit more coordination that's involved. And especially if you get them standing, it's just... To me, it's like, I'm going to get more out of it if I'm standing doing a single arm press than if I am sitting doing a single arm press. It's just something simple like that, especially when we're talking about basketball players where we need to develop just overall coordination, whether it's in the weight room or on the basketball court. Um, so as, as I'm getting to know you, Mike, it's, it's it seems like you're very... Um, focused on movement first. You want your athletes to be very good movers, high quality movement. I think one thing that goes with that is the idea of mobility. Talk to me a little bit about if you have somebody that comes to you that is not very mobile, but in your mind, Mike, you're thinking, I know you want to be a good basketball player, but I need you to be a good mover. If that's kind of the drum that you beat as well. How do you start with getting them just to move better? How do you implement mobility? Talk to me about that. Yeah. uh, One of my best friends slash mentors. He coached me as a freshman in college and he came up with this term called EDDs, everyday drills. And as simply put, you do them every day. They're like the the fundamental precursors of 
catching the football. And it's a bunch of catching drills, grip drills, movement drills with the ball, just, you know, kind of waking the system up. So I have adopted that term and applied it to my uh, as a part of my training system, where the first session that you ever do with me is an assessment to not only look at ranges and, and end range strength and the ability to stabilize and those types of things, but to kind of filter out what joints are deficient in movement and ranges that are needed. So for instance, you know, adductor length is a very big prerequisite to being able to move laterally, Mm. but not everyone needs to be able to do the splits. Right. So like there's, there's an optimal range that we need to have to be able to slide our feet and move lateral and play defense. So if, you know, for instance, we'll do like, We'll take two valve slides and I'll give them two dowels and they'll basically just push their feet wide, stand extended and and upright in their torso until they feel like either A, some muscle tremble or B, they're like really uncomfortable, right? Because they're they're, they're in this unstable environment on the valve slides, but they do have hand support. So they Mm -hmm. easily can pull themselves out of the split, but- if their feet only get like just outside their shoulder width, that tells me already, okay, your adductor length, either A is weak or B, you need work on it. So boom, that's an EDD red light for me or red flag for me. Okay, boom, I'm gonna take note of that. We're gonna work on adductor length. So obviously we all know exercises that can work on adductor length. I'm a big fan of uh, FRC, functional range conditioning. I use it relentlessly. You know, and, and it's, it's, it's more, more or less the concept than anything, being able to own end range, being able to produce force at end range, right? And then contracting the antagonist muscle as well. Mm-hmm. This so, might be hard, Mike, but could, could you walk us through what that, can you give us an example of what, what that yeah. would look like for people that aren't familiar? Absolutely. So functional range conditioning, uh, Dr. Andrew Spina, freaking genius. Uh, shout out to him and those people. <laughs> um, essentially... When we, when, we, when we think about mobility, we think about joint freedom, okay? Now, taking anthropometrics out of the, the, the picture, meaning everyone has different joint and ranges based off the actual structure of the joint. Let's remove that. We're talking about actual soft tissue length um, or freedom. So if we take, for instance, a quad stretch, okay? Just picture a quad stretch. We're putting our, our quad on length and we're trying to create some freedom in the quad Uh, ability to lengthen. Um, We can stretch it. There are many ways to stretch it. We can pull our heel to our butt and hold that position. We can do a couch stretch. We can do, you know, all the different types. But the problem with just stretching and holding is that it's not a very sticky strategy of creating mobility. Yes, you will gain length, but it goes away. And the reason why it goes away is because the brain is very inactive. It's passive. The brain does not have to have a reason to memorize this new length because there's no activity being happening. You just feel a stretch in your quad. So the idea is put the muscle on stretch and then use it. So earn the length and then contract within the length. And the mus- the, the magic happens when you start to ramp up that contraction to like 80 to 90 to 100% intensity. So I'm talking about shaking you're going to see people shaking 
because they're they're trying so hard to fire that muscle at length. Okay, so that's where the magic happens. The brain recognizes a stimuli within its 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 cognitive makeup, and boom! Now it's like, oh snap! I have to I have to be ready for that that load or that demand next time. Let me go ahead and adapt to it. And that's where the magic happens with mobility. It's like mobility is not a passive no. thing. And that's mm -hmm. why it, it's not something that is everyone's favorite thing to do. It doesn't feel good. It should never feel good. It should very, it should very much so be work. And, you know, guys will be sweating through their shirt, just 10 minutes of FRC, just because of the amount of effort it takes to actually create that adaptation. And then let's say, so you have the quad and then you have the hamstring, right? They, they, they control what the knee does, extend and flex the knee. So like I'm stretching and, and contracting my quad for 20 seconds. But now after that, I want to actually contract maximally the other side of the joint, which is the hamstring. So now you're pulling yourself into that quad stretch. So now you're not contracting the quad anymore. You, you're contracting the hamstring, which actually creates more joint awareness for the brain of like recognizing, okay, this not only does this muscle need to be able to produce force at this length, but it also needs to be able to move at this length. And that's when the antagonist contraction comes into place. So you're working both sides of the joint. You're inducing maximal contraction within the stretch. And that's the FRC principle. And you can do that with any joint. It's a very focused, cognitive, hardworking type system. And it's very different, Mike, from, hey, we're going to just uh, sit and reach and yeah. hold for a minute and a half. It's very different. Yep. You got to earn it. And to earn. me, that's to me, that's how that's how mobility should be taught, though. I don't I think the idea of like, oh, if I just sit and reach, I'll get more flexible. And and we know the difference between mobility and flexibility. But the, that training should look very different than it is just sitting and reaching. Exactly. And it's training. Like you just said, it's you training. know, people put stuff in categories because they want to be able to check boxes. It's not right. about box checking, man. Don't don't check. No, I always say to the athletes, we're not box checkers. Do the stuff correctly. Do it right. Don't just check the box. Like finish, do it well. And it's the same thing for us coaches. Like don't just check the mobility box. Like actually create some change. Right. Talk to us a little bit about your ramp up or your ramp warm up protocol. I heard you on a podcast talk about it a little bit. I'd love to hear more about your ramp warm up protocol. Yeah. So uh, Ian Jeffries, if everyone out there can Google Ian Jeffries, he has a few books that have have kind of inspired the way I look at the warm up model. And uh, I think the book is called Game Speed. But essentially, it's it's not anything outside of what we normally do. You know, we all have kind of these templates that that have been systematized based off of people who are very, very smart, tried, true and tested, and it's been successful. It's the same essential, essential model, like RAMP is an acronym, RAISE. So we're raising body temperature, we're raising muscle temperature, we're, we're raising the heart rate, right? And what, what type of activity, low level activity can do that? You know what I mean? So jumping rope, um, Sometimes I'll throw BFR cuffs at 50% just to change it up and create a different stimuli. Um, it can, it, you know, you can throw your games, your games idea, you know, gamify drills to, to, to take the 
arduousness of training out of the warm-up, right? Like actually create a playful environment so that you can prepare uh, the psychology of the athlete to train hard, right? Because at the end of the day, if I come into the weight room and I'm not in a good mood, I'm not going to train hard unless like I'm angry and I want to take it out on the weights, right? But that's that's neither here nor there. So that's that R stands for 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 raise. And we're just essentially trying to figure out a way to just get the body hot, right? Without inducing some type of, you know, not too much load, not too much speed or force or anything like that. And also not letting it be too passive, right? Don't go tell them to get on the bike or don't tell them to get on the ski yard or whatever, like actually try to engage their mind. And then, and then the A is like activate. And this is your menu of exercise that let's say, for instance, you want to work on lateral movement. Like the, 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 the goal of the day is lateral, lateral movement, strength, lateral movement, skill, lateral strength. So the glute medius is a pelvic stabilizer that is responsible for keeping the pelvis stable throughout movement, whether that's linear or lateral. So we're going to try and activate that glute medius to innervate that muscle to make sure that it's prepared to give us some juice when we're trying to um, go through those drills in the, in the workout. You know what I mean? So I think that come on, coming up with different ways to get that going is going to apply to the A, the activate portion of the protocol. Um, the M is movement. So the M we're trying to induce some type of cognitive demand to introduce them to what the goal of the workout is. So if, again, we have a lateral day, movement ideas are going to be any type of reverse engineered exercise that kind of breaks down the actual motor control and motor learning of said movement strategy. Mm -hmm. So again, if I'm working on lateral movement skill, you know, doing lateral, lateral wall drills are a good way to, to kind of break down some of those movement skills, strategies, and motor control ideas. Um, and then the uh, P is kind of like your plyo metric power elasticity portion of the of the protocol not maximal power or high level plyos but again just trying to get the nervous system ramped up right trying to get your your ideas popping your 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 brain is now starting to get in tune with the elastic response and tissues that need that are needed for the movement goal so we'll stick with that lateral idea you know doing some lateral bounding some lateral skipping lateral hopping, you know, just really thinking about ways that all of these drills within this template apply to the, the movement goal of the day. And that's kind of the idea of the ramp protocols. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a warm-up protocol that prepares the athlete more or less cognitively than anything sure. to prepare for that movement goal, utilizing different drills within each, uh, each stage. Right. I like that a lot, man. And, it, and it, for me, it's the, it's the difference between like, if I'm a, if I'm an athlete, if I'm a client, that sounds more fun, more engaging than, Hey, bike for five. And then I want you to go do your dynamic warm up in the corner on your own. Like it's very much. And, and I think doing that ramp protocol, let's say you do that. Let's say you meet with a client three days a week and you're doing those little EDDs, like you called it. Those are going to add up, man. After time after time, you start doing, you know, even if it's two sets, for three days, that stuff's going to really add up versus just go bike for five minutes while you're texting. 
exactly you you're you're immediately hitting the bullseye straight on i think that every minute is a minute to get better and we shouldn't waste any time on mindless passive ideas unless it's like after the session and they're completely okay go stretch on your own okay right. yeah that's fine but if if you're with me you're with me and i'm working on the 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 the, the movement skill aspects of training at all times you need to be locked in engaged because mindless warm-ups are a complete waste of time if you're paying for right your, your, your session like you're paying for this session you're, you came to me with a goal and, and and intention let me maximize your time and give you a service that actually works mm -hmm. totally last thing i wanted to uh, ask you about is we have a lot of coaches and um trainers that work with including myself high school athletes i know you work uh, primarily with professional players but if you were to give some advice mike to people that whether it's a, a high school basketball coach or a strength conditioning coach in that high school level, what types mm -hmm. of things would you tell them knowing what you know now that could help them, whether it's get to the next level, create some more longevity, injury prevention, whatever it is, what are some things that come to your mind when you're talking about maybe the more of the youth side of basketball? Am I talking to the coaches or the kids? Can we do both? Yeah, let's do both. So if, I, if, if, if I'm giving some advice to, like a like a, a strength and conditioning coach, a performance coach working with youth. I think invest because they're so plastic and so um uh, I'm I'm losing my language. They're they're just very absorbative to information. Like they want they they hunger information. They're eat they're very influenced. They're easily influenced rather is what I mean to say. Um don't take that lightly utilize your your ability to create relationships with these kids because you could be the difference in their lives for the better they're they're with you you know a few hours a week and every moment that you have with those children those kids is is a, is another minute or or hour or day to impact them positively you know, if you can recall, you know, being in high school, there's a lot of different stressors coming from different directions. And, and now with social media, we, we, we fortunately didn't have to deal with social media back in the day. Um, there's even another pressure of expectation and standard that I feel as as coaches, as someone of a mentor slash big brother or big sister slash coaching relationship, you have the ability to to help those 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 different predicaments through mentorship and obviously ultimately through movement um i think that that's something that we should definitely take serious and utilize every moment that we have with these kids and, and try to, and you know when you have 50 kids in front of you it's hard to develop relationships with every single one of them but do your best try you know what i mean learn everyone's name care about them um teach 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 and be be great mentors uh, as far as athletes, youth athletes, I, I, I would mainly want to speak with the parents and let them know that that more is not better. Sure. You know, these these people are still developing physical, physically developing people. And when we apply more than that, the body can handle bad things happen. And we want to blame situations or people or what have you, when it really could just be down to stress management. And, you know the ability to go pro 
is a is an idea notion that for some reason every parent their kid thinks that they can do but you know just enjoy the moment enjoy the process be present with your kid don't live vicariously through that let them have their own career and let and have a great relationship with with your child because at the end of the day you know these kids feel your energy and when they feel like they're not performing to your standard or when they feel defeated or they when they feel you know, everything else that's happening around them, plus your your energy, it's, it's a very hard and, and you, you, you really think about that burnout idea, you know, why kids burn out. And I feel like that has a really big part of it. So just understanding that more is not better. Be present in the moment. Uh, understand that this is their journey, not yours. And, uh, you know, provide them with the resources, but at the same time, let them kind of make their own decisions as well. So. Um, that's really important. Yeah, great stuff. That's a great place to end, Mike. I really appreciate you taking the time, man. I love everything that you stand for and uh, your content's phenomenal. If, if I want to uh, gear my listeners and steer them towards you, what are some ways that they can kind of follow yes. what you're up to? Um, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It, this is a great way to start my Sunday morning. And I really appreciate Yes, sir. Uh, I really appreciate being here with you. Uh, the main medium for me is Instagram. And I'm at Mr. Do It Moving, M-R-D-O-I-T Moving, Mr. Do It Moving. Uh, also, you can check out uh, the website of my of my wife and I's new app. It's called GBG Hoops. It's a basketball performance training app that's going to launch mid-October. So everyone be on the lookout for that. That's www.gbghoops.com. And also, we have a GBG Hoops Instagram where you can filter inquiries of, uh, you know, whatever it is, when the app's coming out, how much, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, that's pretty much where you can find me. Cool. Getting ready for another basketball season. Mike, we'll be watching your guys. Thanks again for taking the time. Guys, if you enjoyed the show, be sure to uh, share this on your Instagram and tell us what you got out of it. I'd love to hear the, the main point that you took from the show. And we'll see you guys next week for another episode on the My Fit Podcast. Take care. Give me two.